Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 34 of Everything Compliance, the only roundtable podcast in compliance. We have Mike Volkoff from the Volkoff Law Group, Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors with Affiliated Monitors, and Jonathan Armstrong from Quarterly Compliance. Today, we take a look at the, the Michael Cohen guilty plea and the Paul Manafort guilty verdict. In this episode, Jay Rosen details how the Cohen case was built on the document-document-document paper trail. Jonathan Armstrong reviews the situation in the United Kingdom on whether prosecutors can or would investigate senior members of the government, what's the role of the Crown Prosecution Service, and the serious fraud office to the party in power for criminal investigations. Full rants follow. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So, Jay Rosen, Jay, you uh, have worked in a uh, business uh, that really focused on documentation, physical documents, uh, translating documents, looking at documents. Uh, You continue that work uh, at Affiliated Monitors. And so I really wanted to pose this question uh, to you. Um, the Manafort, uh, Mike articulated how the prosecutors in the Manafort case used the documents to really bolster a, a true slime bag prosecution witness, Rick, Rick Gates. But I wanted to ask you to maybe focus a little bit more on the Cohen case. And from what you've been able to see in the public record, how were the documents used uh, to uh, either follow the money in a money trail, or really demonstrate the falsehood of the payment records uh, generated both by Cohen and the Trump organization? Uh, Great question, Tom. And I guess uh, my answer will be uh, filed under what not to do when you're trying to conceal illegal payoffs, especially uh, Michael Cohen's hush payments, uh, which have provided prosecutors uh, crucial paper trail to Trump. And, uh, you know, Mr. Cohen may have been known as Donald Trump's fixer, but according to a piece last week in um, Market Watch by our colleague Francine McKenna, clumsy contracts meant to separate the president from plans to pay off two women for their silence about alleged affairs instead gave prosecutors the paper trail to pressure Cohen to plead guilty and connect his actions to Trump. And uh, basically, there were two LLCs uh, that Mr. Cohen set up. One of them uh, was a shell company called Resolution Consultants, and this was set aside for $125,000 payment to catch and kill Karen McDougal's story. And the second one that was set up was called Essential Consultants, LLC. And that amount of money uh, was about $131,000 that Cohen withdrew from his home, his own home equity line of credit. And that was supposed to be the money to uh, pay off Stormy Daniels. So now we've got two shell corporations that have been set up. They've paid out approximately $130,000 each. And now Cohen has to go back to the Trump organization and find out how can he set up a semi-legal way for him to get paid back from the money that he put out there. So um, part of the problem, 
is a little bit of the greed here because besides being reimbursed for that money, he wanted to have it grossed up by the Trump organization to take care of any tax implications. And then he got a bonus. So you can actually see this paper trail that he's leaving, leading. And then there was an email from someone and one of the executives in the Trump organization that said, please pay from the trust post to legal expense expenses and that these payments were going to be spread out over a multiple month period. Uh, the thing that Cohen tried to do was to minimize the amount of paperwork that was out there, but then he probably was his own worst enemy because at one point here, in addition for wanting to get uh, remunerated for the $130,000 payment from his bank account, he also put in for a $30 wire fee transfer. So um, really what happened was is, is a very convoluted way for him to get paid. And, um, you know, I, I think what I've seen in uh, investigations before is that there are emails, there are contracts, there are um, the correct way to look for uh, payments and to follow the money. And when you have unorthodox and incomplete documentation, uh, sooner or later, that's going to come back um, to bite you. And unfortunately, if you're involved in a nefarious or questionable enterprise such as Mr. Cohen, his desire to keep every document, document, and document. And Tom, I know you're always talking about documenting things in terms of ethics and compliance and preventing any uh, potential FCPA situations. But uh, Cohen's need to keep all this information uh, ultimately might have been his undoing. So just like Hansel and Gretel in the Brothers Grimm fairy tales, who took a slice of bread and left a trail of breadcrumbs for them to follow their way home, Michael Cohen's financial maneuverings have inadvertently left an indelible financial breadcrumb trail for the government prosecutors to follow right to his two shell corporations. In the fairy tale, Hansel and Gretel are once again abandoned, and they find that birds have eaten their crumbs and they are lost in the woods. If only Michael Cohen could be so lucky. You know, Jay, I just want to say I'm with Michael Cohen on getting reimbursement for the $30 wire fee. Man, those things drive me nuts. And I used to seek reimbursement for the $1.50 ATM fees when I used the corporate payment card. So I'm, I'm with Cohen here. Okay. Well, that's good to know. So, Jay, um, one of the things that intrigued me was not simply – as you um, so eloquently phrased it, the unorthodox and incomplete documentation, but the um, incorrect documentation utilized by the uh, Trump organization or mischaracterization of payments. And I think we both have seen a situation, certainly in the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act world, where the mischaracterization of a payment uh, as a marketing expense, as a charitable donation, as something other than, than what it was, uh, is the basis of a books and records violation. And so I was wondering if you might uh, uh, give some thoughts really onto why the characterization of a payment is so critical 
certainly to a public company, but really any company that's going to be uh, scrutinized by regulators. Well, it, it just, uh, I, I think um, when somebody is coming in after the fact and, and they start looking at things, um, most of these auditors or, you know, attorneys who are work doing this work, they're very well uh, familiar with how uh, books and records are cased, uh, rather, um, you know, how they're um, kept and what is the uh, exact terminology that needs to be used. So when something uh, seems to be incomplete or there seems to be uh, payments to people who either don't traditionally get that payment or wouldn't, you know, even be paid that kind of money. Those are the things that number one stick out. And so there are, you know, the, the, the number of zeros in a payment, but then how it's mischaracterized, I think, you know, you're, you're just compounding, uh, the, um, the, the potential for, uh, you know, having something looked at. And back to my earlier statement is if these were legitimate expenses and they, you know, if there was a way that you could legitimately expense a payoff for not having an article appear in the National Enquirer, then there wouldn't be any issue with that. But that's uh, unfortunately what they couldn't have been, what they couldn't say in this situation. So um, re realistically, um, there are only certain uh, amounts of proper business expenses that you can have. And I believe there is just too much confusion here in the effort to want to cover things up that actually led to it seeing the light of day. So, I, I, Jay, I'd like to follow up on a point you raised with Mike Volkoff. Mike, uh, one of the things um, in FCPA investigations is that uh, regulators are looking at events that happened sometimes a long time ago, three to five years ago unlike Cohen, where they happened uh, relatively recently. Why is the, the proper uh, categorization of payments and or documents so critical when you have that three to five year kind of retrospective look back? Well, that's, and, and that's, the, that's the issue is when you have a five-year uh, statute of limitations, which applies to the FCPA in most criminal cases, um, these are you know, each expense, uh, you know, carries with it the possible liability for, um, you know, a, a false books and records uh, type of charge. And the thing that's important in the books and records law is that there's no materiality requirement. Uh, so, I mean, technically, when, uh, you know, let's say that, and this would never happen, but let's say Matt, Matt Kelly put in for $3 instead of the $1.50, um, that, uh, you know, he was trying to get reimbursed, claiming that the, the ATM fee was higher. I mean, you run into uh, a problem, uh, you know, technically all of these things are violations of the book, books and records uh, in terms of did you have controls to make sure that Matt wasn't taking additional money because he was going to give 50 cents to me as part of a bribe. And believe me, I can get bribed for as little as 50 cents. So, you know, he he uh, so I think this raises um, really important issues. And by the way, this is why the SEC has focused so much on and you'll see it in all their FCPA decisions, invoice to payment processes. What is your company's invoice to payment processes? And you people are 
trying, I think, putting more resources into that. And that means, obviously, our favorite thing, documentation, authorizations, and making sure that there's a process where you have segregation of duty conflicts eliminated or minimized. So, Jonathan Armstrong, you've been uh, listening to this, uh, no doubt with interest, uh, this commentary on American jurisprudence, prosecution, and um, requirements under some of our laws for documentation. But, Jonathan, the question I really wanted to explore with you today is there's much discussion, as you've heard in the U.S., about whether prosecutors should uh, or even can investigate the president, his family, and his inner circle for their actions prior to the time they became uh, uh, or elected. And what I wanted to ask you is, is there anything analogous in the United Kingdom? So, for instance, if the United Kingdom or a British um, prime minister and his or her, I suppose, team were engaged in such blatant corruption, uh, could a UK prosecutor investigate uh, such corruption? And then uh, it might also be helpful if you could explain uh, to our audience the relationship of the Crown Prosecution Service and the Serious Fraud Office uh, to the party uh, in power, uh, I guess right now that's the Tories, uh, for criminal investigations. Yeah, happy to. Um, One of the things I thought we could maybe spend just two minutes on is obviously there is nobody on this podcast that is interested in this. But back in 1988, I studied legal history under Professor Mark Ockelson, who was uh, one of the leading lights in legal history. So uh, apologies to Professor Ockelson if my memory has faded. But I think the first thing that we need to remember is that impeachment is something that the US Constitution has inherited from, uh, from England and Wales. But impeachment was there for a very, very specific reason. And the reason was you could not prosecute a a lord and only lords could try other lords. So it was literally a trial of one uh, by one's peers. So a peer of the realm. So impeachment was there because you in the early days, at least, couldn't uh, c- couldn't try a lord, and as you will know, Tom, the first impeachment proceedings were brought in 1376 against uh, Lord Latimer, and um, and the last impeachment proceedings in the UK were in 1806 against Lord Melville, and that I think uh, accords with my theory that it was really a, a process for the lords rather than the commons. You'll remember by, I guess, about 1600, our Houses of Parliament had split into the Commons and the Lords. Few differences because, as those uh, avid Poldark fans will remember, and I know it's our aim to do compliance and Poldark, the the Lords at the time effectively chose the Commoners, chose people from their area to go into the House of Commons. And And the reason for this is that there was obviously then two separate processes, if you like, impeachment for the nobility and regular criminal trials for commoners. And as a result, we've always had these two different systems until, as I say, the 1800s when when impeachment went. And that went effectively because uh, 
lords could be convicted or uh, just as everybody else has. And, and, and we've obviously seen many high-profile cases since Lord Archer, for example, uh, Thatcher's right-hand man in some respects being, being one of them. In the UK constitution, you obviously can't prosecute the Queen, uh, but you can theoretically at least prosecute the Prime Minister. Um, why I say theoretically is, as you say, we have this distinction that the Crown itself uh, brings prosecutions, but effectively they're brought by the Director of Public Prosecution. And traditionally, the DPP is not a political appointee. So, for example, the uh, last DPP but one, um, uh, uh, Keir Starmer, went into politics after his DPP-ship, but that's relatively unusual. They tend to be career prosecutors, usually, sometimes defence counsel, who, who are very autonomous. And we've seen that in all sorts of... Uh, all sorts of cases where prosecutions are sometimes brought against government interests. And as I say, a number of people in the Thatcher administration, uh, Hamilton, uh, Archer, uh, etc., were prosecuted. The last attempt, I think, to prosecute a uh, prime minister in the UK was relatively recently, uh, July 2017, when there was an attempt to prosecute uh, Tony Blair for his over-reliance on U.S. intelligence uh, in the 20, uh, 2003 Iraq war. It was a case brought by a former Iraqi general who was upset that, uh, that U.K. forces had attacked him under, under uh, Blaise's orders. Um, the case didn't get very far. The, uh, it, it was said that the, there was no cause of action, there was no crime uh, uh, committed under the law as it existed in uh, 2003. And in any event, I don't think it would have got anywhere because we have a process where the Director of Public Prosecutions can issue what's called a, a nolle prosequi. So he can say this case cannot be brought any further. He effectively adopts the case as his prosecution, if it's a private prosecution, and then effectively squashes it. And the same test exists for prosecutions in the first place. We have a code for prosecutors that has to be followed. And if there's no evidence or it isn't in the public interest, then the case uh, would die. So, so I think if it were uh, the UK situation, impeachment would be less likely. Let's say, let's say somebody wanted to, to prosecute Theresa May for something more serious than her inability to dance in a Nigerian village then um, then, then the more likely route would be a civil action, but I don't think that, a, a criminal action, but I don't think that, that uh, is, is likely to succeed against a serving uh, a prime minister. One interesting thing, though, going over to mainland Europe, where um, it, bizarrely some of the parliaments in uh, Eastern Europe also have elements of the British constitutional system in them, and there was an interesting development in the Czech Republic recently, where um, under the Czech constitution, it seems that they were uncertain as to whether their prime minister uh, was immune from prosecution. And there were various uh, fraud allegations against him, uh, Andrish Babash. And um, 
he uh, there was a parliamentary hearing to decide effectively whether he had immunity and if so that immunity should be lifted and babash himself asked for the immunity to be lifted and he said i want to remove any doubt and i am also confident that i will be cleared in any prosecution so i'm going to put my money where my mouth is and ask parliament to make it certain that i don't have immunity bring the prosecution on i will defend myself as uh, as any other citizen has to defend themselves against uh, allegations so potentially i know president trump listens to these podcasts potentially a model there uh, for the us Well, I had really not thought of uh, either President Trump listening to this podcast or uh, the uh, European model being adopted by uh, Donald Trump in, in any uh, any uh, way, shape, or form. Uh, Jonathan, could you, you explain a little bit about the structure of the Serious Fraud Office and how it relates to uh, really any of these things we've been considering? Yeah, uh, I, I think at the moment that's a watch this space. As you know, the new director of the SFO has just assumed office uh, early. Uh, she has in the past said that she uh, effectively would support or would not object to uh, a more of an amalgamation of the SFO with the separate system that uh, exists for regular crime. But, but how we have it uh, in the UK presently is things like bribery, things like fraud, can be prosecuted either by the CPS, the Crown Prosecution Service, working with the police, or alternatively by the Serious Fraud Office if it meets the SFO's criteria. So basically it has to be serious. Most of the cross-border stuff is handled by the SFO, but not exclusively. Some of the Bribery Act prosecutions have been brought by the CPS. There's an investigation, uh, uh, some charges just laid uh, today in connection with soccer slash football that seem to have an international element and those charges are brought by City of London Police who will be working with the CPS on the prosecution. So uh, in practice how it works is that if there's a borderline case, generally speaking, the SFO will liaise with the CPS and obviously a lot of complaints go in through the SFO which are passed along to the CPS if they're regarded of a, of a more minor nature. But we have a parallel system currently. The SFO is effectively a one-stop shop for prosecutions. It has its own investigators, forensic accountants, a spanking new computer system, etc. The CPS always work hand-in-hand -hand with the police, and the police would do the investigation. So, Jonathan, you mentioned the new director of the SFO, Lisa Osofsky, uh, and uh, noting appropriately uh, she's an American. Uh, leaving that anomaly aside, um, do you see uh, her as really uh, moving to a different model of prosecution? Is it really watch this space? Uh, uh, and then why would an American be appointed to head the SFO? I think they're all great questions. I think it probably is 
watch this space at this stage. Um, I know I was at a, an event with the retiring director, and there does seem to be uh, some elements of mystery about it. She was unable to take up her appointment, we were told, um, once she had got the job uh, because uh, there was some professional conflict that prohibited her from taking up appointment uh, uh, straight away. And then she um, was meant to be starting on September 3rd and did actually start on August 28th. So there are, there are a few unanswered questions, really, about uh, her appointment. And there's obviously a number of rumours about all sorts of situations as to whether she was or was not the first choice and whether other people uh, were uh, were the first choice and were conflicted or had professional issues, which meant that they couldn't take up post. Um, so, so it is watch this space. I think the SFO's uh, announcement is not... Uh, in any way uh, verbose it, uh, it's uh, it's two lines and um and we haven't had any speeches from her equally um we haven't had any sort of parliamentary process like you might do in the US where there might be a congressional hearing of some sort with the debt protection regulator we had a pre-appointment hearing where there was the chance to understand her views on various aspects, um, but we haven't had that in this case. So, so it is still watch this space, really. So the, um, I guess the uh, the other thing is the, uh, um, and maybe this is all part of watch this space. Because we'll, uh, there, there's um, obviously the review going on in the House of Lords of the uh, Bribery Act. There is has been certainly, if not criticism, commentary uh, about the use of deferred prosecution agreements. Do you really think uh, kind of all of that's up for grab right now, at least for review? I personally would suspect not. Um, my, I think my view would be that there probably haven't been enough DPAs to get any metrics on whether they're working or not. I think a number of us would like to see more clarity on the discount that you get for, uh, for, a, for a DPA. I think there's a, a lack of incentive in many respects to take a DPA, a DPA over the other options. Um, and most of the DPAs that we've had so far ha have been somewhat odd, you know, for various reasons, because there was a corporate deal that people wanted to rush through or because cooperation was offered to a corporation that hadn't self-reported. So that opened up the possibility of a deal a corporation that was effectively in um, in liquidation did a DPA, presumably to protect the parent company. So there's not been really a regular DPA as yet. So I guess it's too early to say whether they're in jeopardy or not. Obviously, there were people who objected to the DPA system and the McDonald'sization 
of uh, the fight against bribery and corruption when, uh, you know, before they were introduced. And those people, I guess, will still be on the sidelines um, heckling whilst not pro providing any better options. Jonathan, one, one kind of final question. Uh, one of the things that always struck me extraordinarily positively about both uh, Director Green and his predecessor was that uh, people like yourself, uh, other solicitors in, uh, in the city, barristers, uh, could simply pick up the phone and call David Green and uh, ask for an appointment. And uh, uh, as the prior director as well, uh, I don't want to say an informal relationship because certainly uh, there was recognition of, of the title and role that the directors held, but there was an openness that typically you don't see uh, here in the United States. Do you anticipate that that tradition would change? Yeah, again, I'm, I'm not so sure. I think that the early days of the Green regime uh, were... Uh, I think he was regarded as being less approachable than in later uh, years. And I think, to his credit, he did uh, reach out to uh, to people a bit more and was more willing to answer questions. I mean, particularly, in my personal opinion, post-Rolls-Royce, I think that there was even a, a change in body language at events. But there are some in the SFO uh, and people who attended uh, one of the SCCE events in Europe will know exactly what I'm talking about. There are some in the SFO who have refused to answer any questions about anything at all and would only read pre-prepared speeches. And I know this is going to sound unkind, but not even read them very well. And <laughs> and, and I'm not sure that that does the office or the, uh, the you know, the office that a, 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 a sense of good in a way. I think it's important for prosecutors, particularly those that are trying to encourage cooperation, to get out around the city and meet with people and not be seen to be a pushover, but be seen to be available for open and honest discussions about things. The other challenge, of course, that the SFO has at the moment is uh, a number of unhelpful things that have happened one is the undermining of, or the perceived undermining of privilege in the ENRC case. And the other is encouraging people to have uh, HR people lead bribery investigations so that the SFO isn't hampered by a lawyer asserting privilege. They're unhelpful things to say. Uh, you know, as I said in my earlier remarks, you know, some of the some of the stuff we do in England and Wales goes back to 1376. Privilege is about the same age. And, you know, if the system has worked broadly for ballpark, you know, 700 years, then why is this uh, hurry for the SFO to change the rules in, in, you know, in two or three weeks or months? And the difficulty with that, of course, is back to Mike's very early comments about juries. You know, we have, uh, it, I think it makes it more difficult, not less, uh, than to get uh, prosecutions against people involved in bribery if it is perceived that the prosecution has tilted the playing field in their favour, particularly by undermining privilege 
which is a cornerstone of our legal system. So that is something that it would be good if the new director spoke out quickly and uh, definitively to say that her office will not undermine privilege as the previous regime had been perceived as doing. Does that count as my rant for this week? It wasn't my planned rant, but... No, no, you still get a rant. That's a, that's a great segue because, gentlemen, I'd now like to, to move to rants. Mike, you got a rant for us today? Yeah, and uh, I'm, this is not so controversial, but it really just uh, bothered me. I thought the um, the 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 death of uh, Senator McCain and the uh, services that have been held, and I don't know if anybody saw the speech uh, given uh, by uh, former Vice President Biden, but it just reminded me about um, you know honoring uh, the service of John McCain and uh, sort of the, the absence of any class in the response from the White House. And um, it just reminded me, though, that uh, we still do have classy people and we still do have honorable people uh, in, this, in our leadership. Uh, and hopefully um, this was just a really disappointing time to see the, the way the White House responded to the death of somebody who you may not have agreed with them all the time, but nobody could disagree he was a hero uh, and that he was an honorable person in many, many, many respects. So anyways, I was really uh, struck by that. And my rant is, you know, look, uh, I sort of see the tide turning, that people are getting tired of uh, sort of this, you know, classless act and uh, want to see a return to normalcy. Matt Kelly. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to step away from politics for my rant and complain about Bird. That is the online scooter rental company that has been trying to sweep the nation. It is basically like um, a self-rental of electric motorized scooters. And uh, their big shtick is that these scooters, you can leave them anywhere when they come into your town. Uh, you can leave them on the street. There is no particular docking station. You use an app to uh, locate a scooter by GPS, and then you can ride it a mile or so to whatever appointment you might have across town. Um, cheaper than Uber, uh, better than maybe the bus if it does not work, and more cost-effective than driving. Great sales pitch, right? Well, here's my complaint is that Bird has taken to um, invading these communities uh, without really asking the community in advance that, you know, do you have any concerns about us doing this? And this is near and dear to my heart because one of the very first places Bird decided to you approach in the United States was Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I live. And early in August, suddenly we started seeing these scooters all over the place. And uh, it led to this miniature wave of outrage because Bird has no particular plan for um, what about liability if a Bird rider hits a pedestrian. These scooters can go 15 to 17 miles an hour. That is like getting hit full force by somebody running at the speed of Usain Bolt. I would prefer not to do that. Um, 
what about if they are just littering things, uh, littering up the sidewalks? Or can they be on the sidewalks? Should they be in the street? If they should be in the street, do they need turn signals and brake lights? And these are all questions that cities have, that states have. Bird does not have any answers. Um, it is especially near and dear to my heart because Bird has basically said this is a new piece of technology and we should be embracing it. Well, I stepped out of my house one day and I saw a bird scooter on the sidewalk in front of my neighbor's house. Now, it was just there lying around. When I see an object that looks abandoned on the street, I do not think it is new technology. I consider it trash and I threw it into the gutter. Um, the mayor of Cambridge uh, actually dispatched DPW crews to drive around town and seize the bird scooters. So uh, this lasted for about a week. And then uh, Bird graciously said that they would take back all of the scooters, including the ones that were in the city impound lot. But um, you can't do this. You can't just waltz in to a city. And I'll give an even more useful, I think, uh, not cute political point is there was a bike sharing service that was funded by Chinese investors that came into a city just to the south of Boston and Cambridge. Another one where you put the scooters wherever they are uh, or put the bicycles wherever they are. And then the investors pulled the plug. And now we have all these bicycles all over the city of Quincy, Massachusetts. And the mayor of Quincy stood up and said, why is it my taxpayer's problem to clean up the mess of a couple of bad business executives uh, based over in China? Well, how, why are we supposed to foot this bill? Um, so there are, uh, there's a lot of this these days. The regulations, I mean, I'll rant about the regulators too. We've got no regulations to figure out how we're supposed to do this. So it's a really cool sounding idea right up until the regulators aren't keeping pace with technology and the tech companies couldn't care less about the regulation and seeking permission rather or seeking forgiveness rather than permission. Not a good way to start a relationship and not a good sign of your ethical culture, in my opinion. So um, that's my rant about bird. Jay Rosen. So uh, just like Mike Volkov, uh, I've been transfixed with the way that uh, America and Americans are saying goodbye to Senator John McCain. And uh, it looks like he's put a lot of thought into these ceremonies. He's had a while to plan his departure. And from the plurality of speakers, Larry Fitzgerald, Joe Biden, and, you know, having Scottish bagpipers. And my parting uh, vision is as the uh, coffin was leaving the um, church yesterday, that they started playing Frank Sinatra's My Way. And um, McCain's always been known as a maverick. And you might think that playing My Way could be interpreted as being selfish. But I think his way is the American way. And as Mike was saying, there's a way of service and country and working together and having respect and having toleration. So I, too, am chaired by... Uh, the fact that there are more Americans who appreciated Senator McCain's service and without mentioning the name of those people who are classless and don't appreciate, uh, I'm glad that the country has had these uh, next few days to remember Senator uh, McCain's contributions and to also look forward to, as Mike said, that the tide is turning. Mr. Armstrong. 
Well, I um, I've been thinking of something that uh, Roy Snell gave voice to in his uh, Twitter feed this week, and my words, not Roy's, but almost the curse of the enthusiastic amateur. Now, for full disclosure, I tried to teach myself to paddleboard this summer just by using YouTube tutorials. And um, it seems to me that there are these days quite a lot of people trying to learn compliance the same way. And I think it's more dangerous than, um, you know, the risk of me falling into the water and making a fool of myself. And we've had one example of that in the last couple of weeks in the UK. Now, I'm not going to give the names to uh, protect the innocent whilst they, uh, if, whilst they have a chance to defend themselves. But a while ago, I was asked to be the keynote speaker at a GDPR conference. And, and I don't say keynote, it's, it's relevant. I don't say that to boast. And about four speakers after me, was a guy who got up and spoke about uh, something different than the topic he was given. And some of his talk was wrong. And it was quite embarrassing because I was still at the conference and he would keep looking to me and say, as Jonathan will confirm, and nodding. And occasionally I had to say, well, not strictly true, or as a slight upgrade, you know, I was, I was genuinely trying to be polite about it. Then I was quite surprised to see something from this individual on social media saying that he was the keynote speaker at this particular conference. Surprised because I think I was billed as that and he wasn't. And then the plot thickens in that this particular individual then announced that he was writing a book. And the book appeared with a foreword by our data protection regulator, saying that this guy had been at the forefront of data protection advocacy for many years. Now, one individual who was, I was mildly suspicious, but one individual who uh, was quite upset has made various FOI requests, et cetera, et cetera, and established that this particular individual uh, was involved in marketing until about a year or 18 months ago when he decided that GDPR and compliance were profitable things to do. And uh, he went on the lecture tour, published uh, the book, uh, and um, secured a foreword from the uh, regulator. Now, unfortunately, things have started crashing down a little. It seems that the regulator doesn't wish to share details about the evidence that she had to endorse the book. The publishers are investigating complaints that entire sections of the book, I understand, were cut and pasted from other publications. And the book and reference to it have been removed whilst this investigation continues. Now, for the interests of fairness, of course, this investigation might uh, might work out that this individual is absolutely a, a peer of the community and that the allegations against him are unfounded. But it seems to me this illustrates what Roy was saying in his tweets, really, about the dangers of taking people at face value. Often we see in the compliance community people who pop up from nowhere 
uh, a little bit like whack-a-mole, stick their head above and tell us that they're the expert in something. And sometimes we just stand back and ponder, and maybe it's time that, like this particular guy has who got a B in his bonnet and made FOI requests, maybe every now and then we've got to hit the mole on the head and call it out, because otherwise other moles spring up and we're going to be taken over by the enthusiastic amateurs, who in this case at least seem possibly to have done real harm. So I'm reminded of the uh, maxim that how do you determine if someone's an FCPA expert? You ask them if they can spell FCPA. Um, yeah. I, uh, actually, I, I want to join for a shout out uh, today. And my shout out is to Mary Schelling. Uh, yesterday was National Frankenstein Day. Uh, 2018 is the 200th anniversary of the publication of the first modern science fiction novel. Uh, and I want to uh, give a shout out to Mary Shelley, who at the age of 18 wrote uh, the novel Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. Uh, she dreamed it up at uh, Lake Geneva in Switzerland, and it has become uh, certainly a, a classic novel, a classic movies, and uh, the forerunner of all modern science fiction. So here's to you, Mary Shelley. Gentlemen, as always, it's been a great episode, and I look forward to uh, continuing. Thank you all. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this special two-part episode of Everything Compliance, where we took a look at the Michael Cohen guilty plea and the Paul Manafort guilty verdict. Hope you will join us again when the Everything Compliance gang gets together to explore compliance and compliance-related topics. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.